This is Global News Watch. Former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for the Middle East and Paramilitary Operations Officer for the CIA and current National Security and Defense Analyst for ABC News, Mick Mulroy, joins the Media Mavens podcast for a monthly review of global events and their impact in our lives. And here is the host of Global News Watch, the CEO of Axis Entertainment, Sarah Miller. Hi, this is Sarah Miller and Marjorie DeHay with Meet and Mavis podcast. We're here again with Mick Mulroy, former CIA and defense security analyst for ABC. Hey, Mick, how's it going? Good. Great to be with you, ladies. <laughs> I'm just laughing because like, I keep promoting you, making up titles for you. Pretty soon, you're going to be ruler of the mm-hmm. free world if I can't get the <laughs> long title straight. Uh, I don't want to. I'm just trying to analyze it. <laughs> We're just analyzing, breaking that down with the yeah. problems are. We don't really want to rule it. We got so much to talk to you about. You know, we, we have a few different things that's going on in the news. I know you've been talking all over the place to you know, CNN, New York Times, ABC on from the China, Taiwan issues, the prisoner swap in Russia and this recent strike of one of the Al Qaeda senior leaders with the drone. So I want to kind of go through all of this with you, get an update of where we're at and how these things, how this past week is affecting what's going on globally around the world. Because we know everything that happens globally affects us here back in the United States. So I want to talk a little bit about this strike on one of the Al-Qaeda figures, Zawahari, Zawahiri, because I know we talked to you about this and you guys took him out with the drone. Very clean. You guys were hunting him down. But the concern is he is in Afghanistan and one of the head Taliban figures said it was a clear violation of the Doha agreement. So we want to talk about this with you, see if this has any impact on the Taliban's in Afghanistan that we went through last year. And how did this come about that you guys were able to um, hunt this guy down since we don't have military in Afghanistan anymore? Yeah. So I think if we start with the Doha agreement, that was the agreement that was made between the Alaska administration and uh, the Taliban in Qatar who was hosting it. And the one part the Taliban leaves out is they also agreed to not protect al-Qaeda and other terrorist organizations in Afghanistan. That was their bargain. We wouldn't have had to track down and kill al-Qaeda's emir in Kabul if it wasn't for the Taliban protecting him there. So their protests are misplaced, I think is the best way to put it. If I go through what the White House has put out that we did in order to get to a point of being able to take a shot against Ayman Zawahiri, who was, just for the audience's background, he started the Egyptian Islamic Jihad. He then became connected to Osama bin Laden in Afghanistan during the Soviet occupation there. He then started al-Qaeda together. He was one of the planners of 9-11, as well as other terrorist operations. And then he took over after we killed bin Laden in uh, Abbottabad, Pakistan in 2011. He's been the emir ever since. So that's who this individual was. And he was based, I mean, he was in Kabul when you guys took him out. Right. According to what the White House has put out, we, the CIA, had gotten information about his family moving into Kabul. And from that, I think, obviously had assets on the ground because he couldn't do all the things that the White House said we did to get to where we got without that. But found his house found the family in the house, then determined when Zawahiri got there, and then through, I think, painstaking intelligence collection, determined a pattern of life for Zawahiri, part of which, and this, I mean, good the terrorists do this, but he came out onto a balcony every morning to read the paper or something like that. So we took that, determined, according to the White House, the type of munitions that we could take him out on a balcony without hurting his family inside the house or collapsing the the structure. And then, according to what I've seen in the media, we used a very unique warhead that goes on a Hellfire missile that you'll see called the Flying Jinsu. Not to get too graphic, but essentially it shoots about six blades, almost like a lawnmower blade, going about a 1,000 miles an hour into a target that's the size of a person. So... If you guys separated another foot, this target could take one of you out without injuring the other one. And this, so is what so, was, this is what was used on the drone, right? That's what the media has reported. And it makes sense based on the fact that it didn't cause any casualties and it only killed him. It's really graphic and, and it, re- it will turn a person into red mist, but it will not. I mean, you could be 
Like you, if you were standing in a circle talking on somebody on the street corner, the normal distance you'd be, the other two people would be fine. They wouldn't be any explosive residue or anything. It would just hit this person. So, in, in, you know, the U.S. did that to avoid collateral damage, so killing people that we didn't intend to kill. But that, I mean, I have to cast off. It's like the master class in how to conduct a counterterrorism operation. So that was the positive when it came, came to our area. I but there's some negatives. Yeah, I saw on CNN that the U.S. did not alert Taliban ahead of the strike, but that's the whole point. Why would the U.S. alert them that they're coming after somebody anyways? I thought that was kind of an odd thing for a CNN to report. Yeah, well, we, I think it's been confirmed, but certainly it's out there that Siraj Haqqani, who uh, has a long history of personal history with um, Zawahiri, uh, it was his house, right? So, I mean, we'd be warning the same individuals that were protecting him, right? So... We're obviously not going to give the heads up to the, but this, I mean, the positive is great operation. The negative is this shows that Al Qaeda considers Afghanistan a complete safe haven for all of them. And so they're likely all over the country now, many of whom I assume would be plotting external attacks against the United States and Europe and other partners. Uh, and we can't be everywhere because we have withdrawn completely. So this was a great operation, but it also required you know, a, a couple things to go our way, like to find out that the family was going back, for this guy to stand on a balcony every day. That might not be the case for other people plotting in, say, Jalalabad or Kandahar or some other area of Afghanistan. Now, you were recently quoted in the New York Times saying exactly this, that Afghanistan has now become this safe haven. So with your knowledge of the Taliban and Al-Qaeda, who are the next in line to take this position so people are aware of this hierarchy and who is about to try to, you know, it may be several factions. So where do you see this, the next leader coming? Yeah, that's a good question. And that's that's something the agency immediately turns to once they, they remove a leader and who's the next. So the next most likely leader is named Saif El-Adil, and that's a, a pseudonym, if you will. It means sort of justice. But he's an Egyptian-born Army Special Forces colonel. So he had a lot of uh, training and skills before he then jumped and became part of the Al-Qaeda leadership infrastructure. And he has been there for decades, uh, mostly on the military committee inside Al-Qaeda, but now as the deputy. So media has some reports saying that he is in Iran, which I think is likely. That's a whole other. We could do another podcast on Iran housing Al-Qaeda of the years but likely to leave and go into Afghanistan. And so that's somebody we're going to be trying to find, obviously, we, the U.S. The intelligence community, because he is, the, he is the likely the next leader. And I would say we'll probably bring back a lot of operational priorities to al-Qaeda, something that Zawahiri, quite frankly, was not good at. He did not do much as the Amir. He gave, uh, you know, he recorded video messages and stuff like that. But, uh, Saifalotl is somebody who likely will plan, personally plan, large-scale attacks against the West. Mick, I know we talked, when we talked to you last, well, last year when we pulled out of Afghanistan and there's a lot of Americans left behind. Then we saw the spin of the media saying they will still support women going to school, children. We know all of that kind of fell apart and it wasn't true. With this new leader coming in, are we concerned or should we be concerned that things are going to get worse? Or is it going to ease a little bit of the tension to get some of those Americans out still and make sure some of these women and children are safe and have a chance um, to have a future? Sarah, you're absolutely right. They, everything they said they were going to do when we were pulling out, they didn't do, right? So women can't go to school. Women can't be outside. And I talked to quite a bit of people that are there. It's back to where it was pre-2001, right? So women can't do anything, essentially can't work, can't even go to the playground with their kids unless there's a male relative with them, right? So there, that's completely abolished any any semblance of women's rights. And they're also in, in a major civil war with ISIS-K, which might confuse some people because ISIS was a spinoff of Al-Qaeda. There's a version of ISIS called Khorasan because of this region or uh, historic region in Afghanistan, but they don't like the Taliban. So they fight. There is attacks and explosions every day in, in Kabul and all around the country. In fact, there was just one at a mosque. In the female children's section of the mosque just killed a bunch of people on Friday. So there's a, there's a civil war, and then they have Al-Qaeda there, and they're trying to reconstitute their brand. I mean, they haven't really done a significant attack in, since 2005. So in order, and they're like in 
bad guy competition with ISIS, right? So Al-Qaeda, even though ISIS came from Al-Qaeda, Al-Qaeda would like to get something big on, again, so they can kind of rally their recruitment efforts. And it's on us to make sure that doesn't happen. Now, Afghanistan is, is seen as a victory for a lot of the jihadists. So a lot of them have already gone there. And now if they plan external attacks from there, that's what's most concerning to the U.S. and the counterterrorism community. I have a quick question because I know we have a lot to talk about, Mick. I know when we chatted about this on one of our podcasts last year with the Taliban, we talked about China's relations with them as well. Is this going to, because we want to move into what's going on with the um, China and Taiwan conflict, but is this going, this new leader, is it going to be more of a concern with China or are we still at the same holdings place where China's just kind of staying out of all of this right now on their own? So China essentially tries to stay out of most of the conflicts. Their primary objective is to gain resources for China, right? To expand their economy, their huge population. They have no qualms dealing with completely corrupt governments. In fact, some would say that their government certainly has a very poor track record on human rights. So they don't care if the Taliban necessarily is housing al-Qaeda as long as it doesn't impact China. So anything that happens that further drives the Taliban away from the West or the West away from the Taliban is going to be an advantage to countries like China and Russia. It just is. But this is something that the U.S. has to find completely unacceptable. That somebody who plotted 9-11 was staying in the guest house of essentially the vice president of Afghanistan. So it's, it's, there's no way to put a, you know, obviously a great operation, but we have a serious problem in Afghanistan that we're going to be addressing for a long time. Yeah, well, that's kind of, which is amazing. I just, how far back it set that country. And it's just, it's heartbreaking to see like these children and these women who are going to school to become doctors, nurse, I mean, to really pursue their dreams and have freedom to be taken away so quickly like that. I want to kind of pivot over a little bit because there's so much, Strife going on around the world right now. We know Nancy Pelosi left Taiwan a while ago, and now they're talking about military forces and ballistic missiles coming out of China. Where are we at with this whole thing? So I think a good place to start is to explain, uh, for those who might not know, so the U.S. has had a one-China policy for many, many, many years. Essentially, we consider Taiwan and China as one. But we have an interesting distinction in there. We have what's called the Taiwan Relations Act. It was passed in 1979, which mandates the United States support the democratic, you know, not country, but the democratic entity that is Taiwan militarily. Not that we would submit troops to go fight there, but we have a legal obligation that is not up to the president. Uh, okay, it's, it doesn't matter who the president is. They passed an act. We will support them. Not that President Biden wouldn't have supported them, but that was the purpose of the act. So one could say, do we really have a one-China policy? But, you know, officially we do. Nancy Pelosi, uh, Speaker Pelosi, has had a history of democratic support inside the China realm, if you will. Like she went and met with the Dalai Lama. She was in Tiananmen Square unfurling flags. So she's been antagonist to the Chinese Communist Party for a long time as well. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Most, most American politicians are and should be. But because of her status, which... Some analysts thought the Chinese were a little unclear. She is in line to the president. So she's the third, but she is not actually fall under the president, right? So, cause she's in another branch. She's, a, she's the head of essentially with the legislature, but the speaker of the house. So some were thinking that she works for President Biden when she really doesn't. President Biden can't tell her what to do, can't tell her what not to do. So it wasn't really up to him whether she went to Taiwan, it was up to her as a, you know, her own leader of another branch government. But either way, I personally think China has been planning this military exercise for a lot longer than they even knew Speaker Pelosi was going to go there. So they, they just looked for an excuse. They totally over-exaggerated. They're a speaker, even as significant as she is, with a civilian staff going for less than 24 hours, does not risk Chinese sovereignty. If it does, they, they have a pretty weak sovereignty issue going on there. I think they look for this as an excuse. And now they've launched the largest military exercise that we've seen in 26 years. And it has become increasingly deliberately, in my opinion, provocative. And it looks like it might be a rehearsal for if China would like to blockade the island economically and essentially cut it off or potentially 
an all-out assault on the island, which I think is less likely. But those are what military analysts are looking at right now as this uh, exercise. We talk about China and the U.S., and obviously we're, we're dependent on China. China's dependent on us. But this really sounds like this whole area is now a power keg. If you're thinking Russia, China, Afghanistan, like the Middle East, all together, all of a sudden, if one domino falls, it seems very like we're in a very precarious place in the West right now. Totally. So to your point, we have in Ukraine, where the U.S. is in the NATO countries bordering it. So that could trigger. To here, we have the Ronald Reagan aircraft carrier group that is right next to Taiwan. So that's a trigger point that could happen between us and China. And then Afghanistan, obviously, we have a counterterrorism issue. But we also have an Iran that's getting closer and closer to a nuclear weapon, which uh, some of our partner countries will find unacceptable and will likely take a military strike against them. So any one of those three things could cause either a regional or a worldwide conflict, which would not benefit anybody. I mean, it's. I, I would just hope that uh, the world community doesn't look at this as something that's happening that they can watch. Because if a superpower like the U.S. and China or U.S. and Russia were to get into a conflict that could escalate to a nuclear exchange, I mean, that would that would be could be terminal for many millions of people around the world just from the radioactive fallout, all that stuff. I don't even like bringing it up because it seems a little histrionic. But you have a country like Russia who continuously threatens nuclear war. I mean, almost nonstop. It's insane that we'd even talk about it. But because they are, and they're the ones with 7,000 nuclear warheads, we have to take it seriously. And I, I just think the rest of the world shouldn't look at it as a them problem. It, it is a them problem, but if this problem goes up, it's an everybody problem because we're in the same lifeboat. I kind of feel like, I mean, China wants to take over Taiwan. We have Russia trying to take over Ukraine. I mean, whether it's a power play or not, you know, China's saying they want that reunification with Taiwan and they use military force. But we sell arms to Taiwan. We're supporting Ukraine. But then China's arming, you know, looking at just the staggering numbers compared to Taiwan. I mean, do you think Taiwan even has a chance to defend themselves? So I do. And I think everybody now would be more hesitant to say stuff like, well, China's going to completely overwhelm them militarily because we just watched Russia, you know, essentially try that in Ukraine, fail miserably in the first phase trying to take the capital city of Kiev. And now they're in a standoff, essentially, in Donbass. And the Ukrainians are they might be making gains in the south around Kherson. So and obviously it's still going and they are not anywhere closer to winning. And I think, you know, God knows how many Russians have been killed in innocent Ukrainians have been killed. So I think China's looking at that and going, oh, well, maybe this isn't going to be as easy as we thought. I don't think they could actually successfully launch an amphibious assault against Taiwan right now. It would take hundreds of thousands, probably 100,000 plus Chinese Marines, a lot more ships than they have, a lot more surface warfare ships they don't have, aircraft carriers they don't have, massive uh, strategic bombardment of the island, all the while they're making 180-kilometer passage under heavy fire from Taiwan. Because, you know, one, one missile can ship a, can take a ship, right? And so, you know, how many people go down? And then they have to hit the beach, right? And Taiwan is like the perfect island to defend. It's got a very rocky coast full of cliffs. And there, I'm sure they're building fortified positions there as we speak. And they're going to have, and they're a wealthy country, right? So they will be purchasing from us or every advanced system we have. So everything we've talked about that we've talked about in Ukraine is probably going to Taiwan right now. Yeah, I mean, they're saying Beijing is just becoming a mess right now and it's not safe. I just feel like, you know, because the U.S. isn't really saying if they're going to defend Taiwan or not. They've been kind of on the fence and it's kind of in the gray area. They're not sure. I almost feel like, and I want your opinion on this, if China is looking at what's going on with Ukraine and Russia, and they're just a powerful country, like Russia is, but they're having an issue and we're supporting guns, I mean, ammunition, so much money, billions of dollars of warfare to help Ukraine. Do you think that's going to kind of sway them to say, hey, you know what? There's already one mess in one of our two of our big global partners. Let's just kind of back off here. Or do you think the situation will get worse? Or do you think looking at this from a global viewpoint, like you said, they'll realize it's not worth doing what we're doing, given what's happening to Russia around the world? So I can certainly say I hope so. But I don't know. I didn't think that Russia would actually do a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. I thought that they would look at it and say, how is this necessarily going to benefit us 
it's only going to regenerate NATO, which it is right now. NATO is bigger than it ever has. But obviously, I'm not the. I don't think like uh, Vladimir Putin, so I might not think like President Xi either. So he sees this. I think you're right into to what you call the gray area. So strategic ambiguity is the policy of the U.S. on that topic you just brought up. We won't really say whether we will militarily defend Taiwan. What I mean by that is like send troops, Marines, soldiers, sailors, airmen, right? We will, we have to, by law, support them with military supply. But we have been ambiguous deliberately. But some are saying we should get rid of that policy and just tell them we will militarily defend Taiwan. So Ukraine is important for a lot of reasons. But one of it is it's got one third of the grain supplies of the planet, in my understanding. Taiwan is like 90% of the microchip. And everything, and I'm not a tech guy, but everything has a microchip in it by now. You can't, I mean, even the most simplest pieces of equipment that you have has a microchip in it. So that makes them incredibly important to the international economic system, trade, et cetera, because they produce all these really sophisticated technologies. And if, if China was even blocking it, they decided they couldn't militarily assault the island, but they tried to blockade it. Then it would be a big problem for the world. And then we would have to decide whether we, the U.S., and specifically the U.S. Navy, was going to break that blockade. And that could put us directly into, you know, a confrontation with China, Chinese military. At the, at the time, so they cut off eight things that they were doing with the United States, including climate change talks and all this other stuff. All of them are important. But in this context, they cut off military-to-military communications with the U.S. So that's almost like deliberately creating a scenario where they shoot an air missile, it hits a U.S. asset, we retaliate because we don't know whether it was a deliberate attack or an accident because we have every ship commander has a right to defend his ship. So that goes to the president for that. They respond and then it goes in an escalatory type scenario and they cut off communications with the U.S. The communications the military is not to resolve conflict. That's the diplomats. Ours is to ensure that an escalation doesn't occur if we don't want it to occur. So China be able to say, hey, we shot a missile. We might be we went the wrong way. It's going toward you. Look out. And if it hits us, then it's on us to decide whether well, it was an accident or whether, you know what I mean? But you have to you have to communicate. If you're not communicating, then you might just assume the worst and just respond. And then you have. Uh, it's almost like, like Marjorie said, it's, it's a chain reaction. As soon as somebody pulls yeah. the trigger and you figure you have like three of the largest countries, you talk about partner relations and how the U.S. is there as a free will to be the largest country to protect and serve everybody. But you got to kind of look at what China's doing, what Russia's doing. I mean, doesn't it kind of cross your mind? China's kind of in the same trajectory that Russia just took. You don't think that they actually talk to each other about this? I mean, U.S. is everybody's biggest ally. Without the U.S., it would have been a lot different for Russia. With the U.S.'s support, it's just devastating because we are backing the countries that are being attacked. I know there's so many gatherings of world leaders on certain areas that we discussed from climate control, humanitarian efforts. You don't think there's any source of communications between Russia and trying to say, hey, look, we need the U.S. What are you doing? What, you know, what's going on? Or do you think we are so cut off from both of these countries and all communications that we're like kind of sitting ducks because we don't know which way to go now? So I definitely think there's communications between China and Russia and them being very, very closely aligned is one of the bigger concerns of U.S. national security. Right. So following the Kissinger doctrine during the Cold War, one of our main efforts was to keep China and the Soviet Union as far apart as possible. Right. That, that was the plan. And I think it was a good one. It's harder and harder to do that now because Russia completely relies on China because of its sanctions that we put on them because of Ukraine and China now has looks like has its eyes on Taiwan. So they're going to have to support each other to be able to do both of them. That's a big problem for the United States. I don't really know the answer when it comes to how we do, how do we separate them? Maybe we can't. But we do need to ensure that our partners know that the United States is a good partner and we are the leader of the free world as a country, whether we like it or not, we're it. And so we have to, we have to act like it. And that means standing up for these two autocracies then that's what we do. And obviously, one of them has already decided to invade a sovereign country and and deliberately kill civilians as a means of waging warfare. So if the United States isn't going to fight for that, then we need to rethink what it is we stand for, because that is exactly what I think the whole of the United States is. It doesn't mean it's right. That's the way I look at it. 
that is just, it's amazing that we went through COVID three years ago, and then all of a sudden we have another world crisis we've got to deal with. I want to talk about, let's like pivot over while we're talking about relations with Russia. There's a huge thing I saw like a few days ago, the NBA really backing Brittany Grenier over to get her out. I mean, I know the NBA is so supportive to get one of their own out of there. And then we're talking about prisoner swaps with them. I know mm-hmm. former Marines over there we talked about. We know Brittany Grenier was sentenced to the nine years in prison for carrying less of a gram of cannabis oil. I, I mean, I do, mm-hmm. I feel like she, given it was right when they were going after Ukraine, I feel like that was just a target to anybody who was an American to prove a point with them because it just was not worth it. Let's talk about this prisoner swap. Are we any closer to getting these people out of Russia? And do you think that's kind of a sign that maybe Russia is starting to let up a little bit on Ukraine? Or are these things just stolen separate issues that aren't related to each other? So I think, first of all, I think Russia has put this in its design for quite some time. There's an individual named Victor Boot who is serving 25 years in prison in the United States for selling weapons to terrorists. Nicknames the Merchant of Death. There's a movie made about the guy. He's infamous. They also is another individual named Krasikov, who is a former SVB. That's their intelligence service. It used to be called, uh, you know, the KGB. That did an assassination in Germany against the Chechen rebels that they would want back. And then there's this other guy, Roman, I think it's LNS, who is a cyber criminal, up to two hundred and sixty million dollars stolen by this individual who's in prison in the U.S. So it's likely, for whatever reason, because these people are really just all intel service people that were doing the dirty work of the of the SBR. SBR and SBB are the two groups that came out of the KGB, by the way. Doing the dirty work of the intel. They wanted something to trade, so they just started grabbing Americans, right? So Paul Whelan, former Marine, was just visiting there. Uh, definitely not committing espionage. It's not how we do business. We don't just send Marines to Russia to walk around collecting info. And they know it. They was just totally, we total. Brittany Griner, I don't know that she, her defense attorney's probably totally plead guilty because there was no reason not to, thinking that she might get less than the maximum. So I don't even know if she was carrying that. But even if she was, you know, as a former lawyer, uh, she didn't have the intent to distribute because it was so obvious that she didn't want to do that. And, uh, and to your point, Sarah, it was such a small quantity. What do you mean distribute? I mean, they charged her like she was smuggling pounds and pounds, you know, I think it was a total sham trial, and I think they're political prisoners, is what I'm trying to get to. And they did that specifically. Uh, and uh, I think Marjorie brought this. There's another individual who was over there, a teacher, and we should be talking about that person too, right? Yeah. We don't want to leave any Americans behind. A teacher who had a very small quantity of marijuana, kind of like Bernie Griner pled guilty to. Paul Whelan, he was a teacher, and he was sentenced to 14 years of hard labor in Russia because very similar offense of carrying marijuana, but he had medical, it was medical marijuana, but he was 14 years hard labor sentenced. Was yeah, that, what's his, where is he at now? Was that like a long still, time? No, he's, he's still, still there. there. And that's why he's come up because they're like, well, why are we doing it for one person? Because they have, you know, some cachet when there's other Americans, you know, over there too. So why does it have to be a quote-unquote celebrity all of a sudden to create an issue where there's Americans getting sentenced over there for similar things that there's not this big discussion? Given, you know, with your background, is there a way to find out on the swap how many Americans they do have? Because this a teacher that Margie brought up that, you know, isn't in the news, obviously a Marine's in the news, obviously an MBA mm-hmm. person's in the news. I mean, they're political pawns. I think Brittany was a political pawn when they were coming into Ukraine. But if we're going to negotiate, there has to be so many more innocent humans, Marines, teachers, people that were over there that were just used and captured. And is there any way to find out how many Americans really are over there who didn't do anything wrong as part of this negotiation? Or is that not possible because Russia doesn't really talk and doesn't communicate with anybody of who's there? So it is possible, and there's a whole section of our embassy over there that's responsible for it. So whenever uh, Americans incarcerated overseas, the U.S. embassy in that country is notified, and then they track, even if they had done something that, to, you know, they were guilty, if you will, not not a political problem. We, the U.S. government, in our diplomatic mission, will track everybody that's incarcerated in that country. I'm sure that they are. And I, from following the trial so closely on ABC, 
there was a representative from the embassy in the trial the entire time. So again, I think all these people, they need to be included. You know, the teacher, obviously, Brittany and uh, Marine, uh, Paul Whelan, Brittany Griner. And I think, the, I think you said the other guy's name was uh, Bogle or something. We should actually get the name so we can, we can start saying it. You know, maybe I'll bring it up on ABC. Yeah, a teacher. The teacher was Paul Whelan. And the Marine. Paul Whelan's the Marine. Oh, he's a Marine. Oh, but they're saying, when they, oh, Mark Fogel. Sorry. Mark Fogel. Yeah, there you go. Mark Fogel. He needs to be included in this. I would hope, and I know there's already a travel advisor, but I, I would hope that they could just make it illegal for Americans to travel to Russia because they are essentially kidnapping Americans and then getting murderers out. That's their plan. So they can send their assassins all over the world and then they grab an American and say, okay, I'll trade you this American who was just coming to visit his grandmother for the assassin who just killed 14 people in, you know, Belgium or something. We can't allow this to continue. It's not the way we should be business. We should just ban American travel. Well, I mean, most of I mean, most Americans haven't gone since Russia invaded Korea, but um, Russia has been notoriously known for using their legal system or government as a political gain. They're just advancing their own agenda. And it's always been like that. But I mean, as an American, I mean, it's just kind of both ways. Nobody should be over there. I agree with you. Until things change, it just should be illegal for any Americans to go over there. I mean, I don't think right now anybody is going. They're actually pulling everybody out from the corporate side. But, you know, people do need to understand the bigger message, good, better, and different. When you're traveling globally, especially some of these other countries, Thailand is super big. If you have even a small amount of a gummy, a marijuana gummy that we use that's legal here, you will be put away there. It's so difficult. And I think Brittany did admit publicly a few different times when this happened. She did have a small vial in her bag, but it's the oil, not actual. She didn't have a joint. She didn't have drugs. It was a very small vial that was in her bag from traveling for sleep and stuff. And I think where her were just admit it. You're an American. You're an athlete. But she was over in Russia for a while. Didn't know it was in her bag. But as an American, when we travel internationally, especially in some of these other countries that we love, we got to be careful of what we bring over there, make sure our bags are emptied out and not try to bring stuff back. I mean, I've been guilty of bringing back Kokomate tea. I was going to say, I mean, I, you know, I brought back bottles of stuff before, but I mean, I'm not bringing back. Marjorie, you better cut her off. I know, no, no, it's not, it's not that because I know there's like four <laughs> bottles. When I came back from Chile, I mean, there was like three bottle minimum by customs, right? But I always I knew. Know. Well, I know that for a fact. So I have, um, one of our guys, Stephen, who is Homeland Security, has been traveling around uh-huh. the world. And I always ask him, bring me back. He's like, I got a three bottle minimum. That's the maximum from any country. And I know that because I've traveled the world and I've always sure. gone by customs rules. How many bottles of wine you could bring back? How much of this you could bring back? So I know mm-hmm. that legally because I've done it legally. But what bothers me is when people go over there not paying attention and they are doing stuff saying, Hey, it doesn't matter. They don't follow the rules. They start to bring stuff back. And I just think more people need to be aware, at least right now, you have to be careful when you're going out of the country of what you're bringing back and what you're claiming and stuff. Cause I know it's not illegal to bring back two bottles of wine because I've done it every time I've gone somewhere, but like I'm not shipping cases of wine back and everything, but I know people who are going to Thailand and I'm like, why? Like, with not like Brittany. That's a different story. But I think people in general, because COVID's over, they want to travel. They want to do things. And they're being careless because they think it's okay. It's safe. It doesn't matter if I bring back tea from somewhere or wine because I know what I'm, you know, the limits and I claim it. But people are bringing back stuff and partying because it's easier. And this is my concern for a lot of friends I know going to Mexico. I think it's becoming such a political rife across the world you just you just can't be crossing borders like that and countries without being super careful. It's not worth trying to bring something back. It's not worth. And we as an Americans, it's legal, at least in the West Coast and part of the states. Cannabis, the mm-hmm. medical portion of it. Oh, yeah. People are going legal here in Montana. Thinking, hey, I have a medical card, so it's OK. But those medical cards here in the U.S. are not accepted overseas. And this is where I think more people are probably getting stuck and jammed up that we don't even know about because they're not thinking it through. Your medical cards and what you do in the States is not quite accepted elsewhere in the world. Yeah, but especially the marijuana situation because it's everywhere now. I mean, you could buy 
in states where it's legal, you can buy it at convenience stores and stuff and bait shops. Fine with me. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not poo-pooing it, but you could get very casual with, with where you put that stuff and then find yourself flying with a bag that you normally don't take. And then, oh my God, there's a, like you said, a gummy or something. So, I mean, people do have to be very, very, very diligent in that. Maybe have bags that they travel overseas with and they only use it to travel overseas and they don't put anything else in it. They don't take it domestically. I don't know if that's, I don't know what the answer is, but you're right. You don't want to be caught with this stuff. Perhaps she did. My understanding is she is uh, uh, Mrs. Griner also had a medical prescription. Yeah, and it was a it was a doctor's thing. But to your point, these countries don't care. And, and even I mean, Thailand's one thing, but I mean, I assume that they're following their law. Russia doesn't. They follow whatever the hell laws they want to, right? So they could have just said, I don't. I mean, you're right. She did admit it, but say they could just say they find whatever. Yeah. It's, it's, they own it. They own the legal system. So they're going to, you're going to get prosecuted. You're going to get convicted. You're going to get sentenced. You're going to lose your appeal because they own the whole thing. It's not a legitimate legal system. That's why I'm very focused on Russia right now because obviously we have people that have family members over there. They go over there just to see their grandmother. And then all of a sudden they're, they're, they're spending 14 years in Gulag. Yeah. Right. And then, and then the entire U.S. government is falling over itself and giving away murderers and all this stuff to get them back. And I haven't heard anybody talking about it. So maybe I'm off on this, but there is a travel advisory and you're right. Most Americans are gone, but it seems like the U.S. should go to a point where you cannot go to Russia. Yeah. You cannot go to Russia because it's going to cost the United States government so much money to try to get you back. And it's going to personally impact your life. It almost it, it, seems anti-American to say you can't go yeah. somewhere because it's almost like the second America says you can't do something like all Americans are like, whoa, 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 I'm an American. Yeah, but the thing is, too, Russia, yeah, it's so true. dangerous. We did, it with Cuba. Been, we did it with Cuba for decades. Yeah, yeah. yeah. but Russia's always right. been like that. I'm not saying it's always been this bad. But like I was in Russia, oh, God, like probably nine years ago before all this. And I just had a like, you know, like a legal little bottle of Russian vodka. It was legal. I mean, it was everything by law. It was a small little thing. They took it. They confiscated. They wouldn't let anything. I, mean, I was with a friend. He just had jam from Finland, like a little jam, like peach jam. They confiscated that. I mean, it, it's just, well, yeah, it's fruit. but I mean, just, it's not even about legal, not legal. I mean, well, it is, but it's not, but it's like, this was years ago. And like, I know I had two little balls of vodka that was sealed, that was thrown out. My friend had stupid stuff. Like she had gum thrown out. I mean, it was so bad nine years ago. And I know that because I was there. Think about right now when you're coming over. I mean, and it's and they don't make it friendly for Americans because I was in St. Petersburg. You know, when you're traveling, it has banos, telephones, airports. It has English subtitles. There was no English. They did not want Americans there nine years ago. So if you didn't know Russia, you just stood in one line, head down, and you just followed it. I mean, this was like nine years ago when I was in St. Petersburg. If you know how it was traveling in general, I think how bad it is now. Like to me, I mean, you know, obviously it's a beautiful place to visit. I've been there before, but I almost agree with you, Mick, that there should be a better, stronger law that as of now, until we could get, I don't know, until things get better, if that's even possible, people shouldn't be taking that risk right now. But to Marjorie's point, you can't tell somebody you can't travel and be free. But I think it's a really tough position that the United States is in right now, just with everything going on around the world, because we are trying to be allies to help these people. So it's kind of hard to say you cannot go. But at the same time, you really can't. Because then, like you said, Mick, for us to get you out, it's just it's a way of murder. It's not like, hey, we're giving away somebody who smuggled a grandma. Like they like want like cyber hackers and terrorists and assassins. You're like somebody called the merchant of death for somebody who like it's to a basketball player. Yeah, that's what it is. That's that's a problem. Because it's not just about Americans being able to travel to where they want. It's also about the fact that they end up being used as a pawn to get a murderer out of prison. And it doesn't matter who you are, like you're the teacher. It doesn't matter. Yeah, it's it's not a political track. It's no matter who you are, you've got to be more aware if you want to start traveling around the world right now. Quick question. So where are we at with this prisoner swap? I mean, are we getting close to getting these Americans out or is this more of the start of a long term process? So I think what they wanted to do is get the conviction complete. And so they could say we have, you know, they're just using the two. So Paul Whelan and Brittany Griner for 
Victor Boot, and I, I imagine they're going to try to get Krasnikov. The problem is he's incarcerated in Germany, right? So we're going to have to convince the Germans to let murder him. So I don't know how that's going to work. The other person, uh, Roman, the uh, the cyber security uh, or cyber criminal, he's under our control. So he can be released. I imagine that's where we're going to go. And I imagine there's going to be a lot of back and forth. And I mean, I definitely I want to see them both come home and, and a teacher. I think that's one of the primary responsibilities of the U.S. government is to protect our citizens, period. And I think they're all wrongfully detained. But we'll see. We're dealing with the Russians, right? So it's not necessarily our formal logic. It's, an, it's an, another unknown. It's between that and China right now. We just have two huge unknowns. Is this going to, I mean, where are we at with Ukraine right now? I mean, do you foresee this easing up anytime soon? Or do you think this is just going to be like another Middle East war, which we were in Iran, we we're back in the Middle East for so long. Do you think this is going to be another drawn out five, 10 year war with them? Or do you think there's going to be some end in sight for these people? I think it's going to be a long drawn out what they call a stalled conflict, where there won't be much gains on either side, but neither side will relent. I mean, we're backing Ukraine, so is NATO. So they, they're going to have an endless supply of very advanced weapons. Russia is going to have a dwindling supply of very advanced weapon systems because they can't replace them. We have export controls on a lot of those microchips we just talked about that are made in Taiwan. They can't get them anymore. So they can't even make refrigerators. But we're not just talking about HIMARS. We're talking refrigerators, microwaves, and all these things. So the Russian capability is going to go down, the Ukrainian is going to go up, but the Russians have more people. So it's kind of people being soldiers and they can do mass conscript call-up. So if I think if you want to look for something that would be a bright light, if the Ukrainians can take Kyrgyzstan back, which is a key city on the coast, then the momentum might shift. Then it might start rolling back to Nikolaev, Crimea even. Russia's, of course, trying to talk about we're going to start annexing Areas they just took over, which means they just pick somebody that's uh, pro-Russian and they put them in charge. The international community is never going to accept it. The Ukrainians are never going to accept it. They're never going to stop fighting. So this could go on for a long, long time. I saw, I mean, in the news of the day, the Russians took over one of the power plants that they're shooting out of. But Ukrainians are concerned because they can't fight back if the Russians are coming out of one of their power plants. I mean, you can't sit there and defend yourself when your enemies are in a power plant or nuclear power plant, and that they took it over. And they were actually, I don't know if it was releasing drones or missiles, but they were fighting as a home base from there. And that's just irresponsible and dangerous across the board to any, you can't defend yourself. The Ukrainians cannot fight back on that. They have to walk away from that area, just given the damage and the mm-hmm. destruction to their entire country if that thing goes. Exactly right. That's been the Russians' playbook the whole time, is to be completely irresponsible and target civilian populations with weapons that are banned. They're basically trying to be, they're basically a terrorist state, quite frankly. When you attack civilian population, innocent men, women, and children, particularly children, there's no military target within 100 miles. I mean, that's terrorism. You're trying to you're trying to terrorize a civilian population for your own political gain. That's my definition of terrorism. You know, the ICC has deployed more investigators there than they have anywhere in the world. And they're going to be, decades going to be uncovering the war crime sexual violence, mass executions of civilians using banned weapons like uh, thermite-type uh, uh, incendiary devices on civilian population. That stuff burns at like 4,000 degrees and will go right through a engine block, go right through a person, too. It's just stuff they're doing there is god-awful, and they just need to be held accountable all the way up to President Putin. And I know, like, with all of this like there's been several beyond like military. It's also like we've been trying to squeeze financially. And they said like the long-term effects of the financial crisis in Russia could go on for Yale came out. Yale University said, this is like a catastrophe. It's crippling the economy. It's crippling the people because Mm -hmm. they have to bear the fact that, you know, this war is going on that they may or may not support, but you know, the, inflation, the stagnation, everything that's going on in Russia, it's like, it's almost like self-defeating prophecy because they're going to try to keep getting this thing to get more wealth, but actually because the world is contracting, they're almost Mm -hmm. like creating their own demise. So any thoughts on like how you feel like this financial like warfare has actually fared out in Russia? So I think that the intent is to put so much pressure on the Russian population that they will demand a change in leadership. The problem is it's, an, it's a dictatorship. So the Russian people don't have a lot of say in whether President Putin stays. That's why they really focus on these oligarchs. 
which from my understanding, I'm not a Russian expert, but my understanding, an oligarch is an oligarch only because Putin says they're an oligarch. It's not like they have their own independent wealth and they can boot Putin out. The only reason they have billions of dollars is because it's Putin's billions of dollars that they're allowed to hold. So even that would be hard to put pressure on it since they only have their wealth because he, he allowed them. But to your point, I think the intent of the sanctions is to cause such a contraction in their economy that they will just demand maybe a popular uprising that says we got to have a new government because you're obviously you're not you're not taking us to be the you know the you're not Peter the Great you're you're literally destroying the country of Russia not in, not just for now but long into the future their, their modernity and and their technology is going to be starting to go backwards here soon right they can't even fly planes across their country because they can't get the replacement parts anymore and you know and the point is not to hurt the Russian people but I think the point is to try to force a new leader in Russia. Is there anything else, Mick? I know there's so much going on. Any last thoughts on any of this between China, Taiwan, what's going on over in Afghanistan, Russia? I mean, I feel like this is such a strenuous time for the United States. I mean, to stay strong, to keep supporting the people they need to support. It's a tough situation that I think we're in. And I do think it does start to affect our leadership within the United States of elections coming up in a year or so, you know, our economy. I mean, all of this to me feels like it's just one big connected circular economy because everything affects us here. And we're like that middle guy trying to keep everybody happy and safe. So it can't be an easy place to be right now. Yeah. So I guess for parting thoughts, I mean, I can see how other countries in the world just look at this like some kind of uh, reality series. And I don't mean to put them down. Like I know they realize that this is real, but it's not just about the United States and China, or United States or Russia. This has a massive impact around the world. The fact that the Ukrainians can't get grain out means people starve throughout Africa. The fact that Taiwan could be blockaded can seriously degrade not just, you know, you know, your flat screen TVs, but all the medical equipment that you're in the hospital to keep people alive. That's all got microchips in it. If God forbid there's ever a nuclear exchange between superpowers, that radiation will essentially destroy even I've seen when they focus on just just a, a regional nuclear conflict like a India Pakistan thing, you think, well, how's that gonna affect us? If you just look at the, the scientific models, it affects three fourths of the world significantly. Like forty percent of our food production, forty percent of world food production just from a nuclear exchange between India and Pakistan would be gone. Like that's a lot of starving people. So, uh, and I don't mean to be, you know, histrionic here or anything like that, but it isn't just about the, the countries in question. It is about every country and the United Nations as an entity, which has every country and it needs to view it that way. If China is doing something that could bring the, itself to a nuclear war with the United States, then the world needs to care about it. The world needs to condemn Putin when every time he starts losing in Ukraine, he starts talking about nuclear weapons. It is a completely irresponsible and it's not just geared toward the United States. It's geared toward the rest of the world should take equal umbrage, just like they do with climate change when it comes to these kind of conflicts. Even if it doesn't go nuclear, just a, a world war that stays conventional would also be god-awful, and it would completely disrupt the flow of critical supplies, good energy, food around the world. So I have honest. a question. I know, And I know we don't take sides and we don't get political on our um, podcast with you because we, we can't. But... You know, with elections, I mean, next year, we're starting to see people throwing their hats in the ring who want to run for the United States of America. We got a few guys on the West Coast, East Coast, our next POTUS. Is this a concern? Is I mean, is there any concern here? I know Trump wants to come back in that given how fragile the world is and where we are right now. Are there concerns about who's going to step in next to take over? I mean, if, if Biden stays or goes, it is a concern. Where are we going to be with all of this if somebody else comes in who doesn't have, I don't want to say military backing, because I know that's not the most important thing of stepping into the United States of America's presidency. I get that leadership isn't only military, but I feel like how things are going is becoming more military on our leadership. And is that going to be a concern if the right person doesn't win this next election? So I'm not political, as, as I mentioned yeah. before. I, I'm not a partisan. I don't belong to a political party. I just focus on the national security side of our national policy, right? So to the extent that, I mean, we have domestic issues, we have 
foreign affairs issues, right? So I'm, I focus on the foreign affairs. I think it's it's incredibly important for the president, whoever it is, the next one, to have experience in that arena. And I'm not saying that it's it's an absolute essential, but the world is so small now and it's so interwoven that anything, and it's not always, you know, war this and war that, but, you know, trade agreements between key partners and how do we go about strategic competition with China and Russia in a way that doesn't lead to a war, right? It's all partners. It's all coalitions. It's all, you have to be able to think broadly. And what I would hope is that politicians don't look at everything that happens on the foreign stage as a way to get some kind of advantage on the domestic stage. It used to be we had uh, a saying in the United States that our differences end at the water's edge, meaning that we can argue about all sorts of domestic issues, but when we go overseas, we're Americans. We're not Republicans and Democrats. We're Americans. And the more we get away from that, the more other countries are going to are going to start becoming more involved in our politics because they view us as two separate countries and that or because we have two major parties. And that is a problem. I can say that as a nonpartisan, I can be equally critical of both in that you have to start viewing our foreign policy as an American foreign policy and not one of any particular party, Republican, Democrat or whatever, any other party that uh, might come along. Nice. It was so good to have you on again, Mick. So much to talk about. Absolutely. I know has been a little bit yeah. of a time, but we we look forward to having you back on again next month, getting an advanced right. opportunity to talk about where we're at, where we're going. But I do think like what you just said was so critical. We cannot be traveling around as Republicans, Democrats. We are just Americans and the world's got to come together more. And I mean, I'm not we're Absolutely. not going to go into the political conversations, but as we get closer to election year, it is a, I think it is going to be a concern of who we vote in for the right reasons versus what we've been voting them in for up until this point. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Keep us posted on any updates and we'll look forward to catching up with you again next time. Okay. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Have a great Sunday. Thank you for joining us for Global News Watch. To find more podcasts and to learn more about our host and guests, please visit MediaMavensPodcast.com. Thank you for joining us for this special podcast report. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.